Listener Production. So, Katrina, the eighth COVID wave has sadly come to your house. You get this, I'm wearing a mask in my house. (laughs) Obviously not right now while I'm talking to you, but as I'm walking around my house, yes, I am, because my daughter has COVID and not only, you know, does she have this thing that I guess I haven't talked much about or thought much about for the last little while, she's actually really sick with it quite high fevers. Wow, that's really tough. I really feel for her. And I guess there's probably a lot of other people in, in this situation as the wave goes around, but it's a very different story, the way we think about it and act about it and the information we have about it now. Yeah. And there's so much talk about this at the moment. I mean, here in Queensland where I live, there even there's even been talk about bringing a mask mandate back in. Um, of course, our chief health officer yesterday said, no, nah, that's not going to happen. But we thought we'd do a briefing topic all about this latest wave and what information we need to know to deal with it. There's a new booster on the way. We don't have any information publicly yet about when that might be available. It was approved over a month ago, so hopefully that's soon and, and that will make a big difference, of course, only if we can get that into enough arms. Yeah, I guess the information flow is a huge part of the way we respond to um, these waves of infection. Uh, Once again, COVID coming to try and ruin Christmas. Let's hope it doesn't do it this time. But all the information that you need will be in our briefing. First, here are the headlines. It is Thursday, the 16th of November. So we have some big news on the story we covered yesterday on our briefing about the asylum seekers with criminal histories being released into the community. So after lots of pressure from the opposition, the government is going to be fast-tracking new laws today to deal with this landmark High Court ruling, which forced the release of detainees, including some murderers and sex offenders. The legislation they're going to introduce is meant to criminalise the breach of bridging visa conditions. The opposition is going to be briefed on this this morning with a vote occurring soon afterwards. They have said in the past, Tom, that they will be offering bipartisan support for changes. I guess this cleans up what the opposition, you know, had been criticising the government for. They said, look, you know, yeah, you've got these um, bridging visas in place, but normally a breach of those would see you chucked back into immigration detention and this High Court ruling means, you know, that that can no longer happen. Yeah, well, basically the government's doing what the opposition said they should do. So as soon as this um, all came out, the opposition went really hard saying the government should have been aware that this High Court ruling might uh, happen and introduce laws to deal with it. Um, they weren't ready for that before the ruling, um, but here we are pretty soon afterwards and they're rushing in legislation. So I think in political terms, the opposition will chalk this up as a big win. Yeah, but I also wonder whether there's going to be some more heat uh, thrown onto Anthony Albanese. The opposition has been, you know, turning the screws on him saying, oh, there's all this stuff going on at home and you're swanning about the world. Um, he's going to be in San Francisco for the APEC summit. Um, the, some of the biggest players in the world's economy will be there too, including Chinese President Xi Jinping and US President Joe Biden, and they will have a long-awaited face-to-face meeting. Yeah, so this is this narrative that the Prime Minister's overseas too much and he is going to push through this legislation in Parliament today and then essentially get on the plane for California 
Um, so Peter Dutton is sort of playing to the home crowd saying he's missing in action on key things that are going here at home. But if you've got Xi Jinping and Biden and other world leaders in the room, I think it's pretty important for our leader to be in those conversations. And there's big news about one of the Gaza hospitals that's become a big focal point of the conflict. So Israel has carried out a ground offensive on the Al-Shifa hospital in the Gaza Strip, claiming that it is a safe house for Hamas militants. So tanks reportedly rolled into the courtyard of the hospital as they searched the buildings. The Israelis say that their forces included medical experts to help look after some of the patients. Uh, And America says this is Israel's decision. And it continues to say that the IDF should not be targeting hospitals. Um, I imagine the Israelis are saying, well, going in with a ground offensive is a lot more targeted and a lot less likely to cause civilian casualties than bombing it from the sky. And that's how so much of the damage and the carnage has been caused so far in this conflict. And the ARIA Awards have wrapped up for another year with Troy Sivan declared the big winner. I've been doing this for like 10, 11 years at this point. And so to feel this much energy and, and love and um, yeah, I, I'm confused, but I'm so, so, so happy. So thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Uh, there he is on nine, confused and happy. That's kind of how I'd like to live my life, to be honest. Um, he's been named best solo artist and his song Rush took home three awards. Yeah, the other huge winner was Genesis Awusu. Um, his second album, Struggler, is doing really well. So he won album of the year, best um, independent artist, as well as hip hop uh, release of the year. So three arias for him. Um, he's, uh, an Australian from a Ghanaian West African background. Um, he made a, a strong political statement in one of his speeches last night calling, um, for an end to the conflict in Gaza. And he talked about his album Struggler and said he made it about a cockroach. It's very weird, very strange. It's about roaches and existentialism and a bunch of weird, <laughs> you know, at its core, it's, it's really about, um, us. It's about humanity and our, stubborn perseverance to wake up every day and make it through. You can find inspiration in every corner. <laughs> really? You just got to look for it. <laughs> yeah, every corner of your, your bathroom or your kitchen. Um, <laughs> wow, that guy has done so well. He is such a unique artist, blending kind of hip-hop and funk and rock. He has an incredible band behind him. Um, some of my mates are in that band and they're touring America at the moment. So he was doing these live live spots from America in a studio last night, crossing into the Arias. It was pretty cool. Um, the other really interesting thing from the Arias last night was Jet being um, inducted into the Hall of Fame, and it was just a reminder how big their hits were from that time. What an incredible band, so that was pretty cool to relive as well. Yeah, that was so big. I was disappointed, though. I thought Dolly Parton was going to be there in person. And when I heard (laughs) that she was presenting an award, I got so excited. But she was just kind of online, like she rocked up via kind of Zoom, (laughs) which is not the same. Thank God G-Flip and Chriselle brought a little bit of A-list, you know, uh, rock star glamour to the red carpet. Um, Apart from maybe Christian Wilkinson, there weren't too many crazy looks happening last night. Mm, fashions in the field from Katrina Blouse. I love it. <laughs> it's a it's a big interest of mine. Thank you. 
All right, uh, let's get into the COVID wave. Antoinette has the briefing for you. Australia is in the grips of its eighth COVID wave. And I don't know about you, but every second day I find out a friend or a colleague has COVID. And once upon a time, a new wave would have terrified the masses. But now I reckon a lot of people are trying to forget the pandemic ever happened. So the era of lockdowns, vaccine mandates and daily case number bulletins are thankfully over. So how do you get people to care about precautions and boosters when so many are still angry about instances of government overreach and are trying to move on? Public health practitioners are urging people not to conflate frustration with politicians with people who work in hospitals. Professor Paul Griffin is the Director of Infectious Diseases at Mater Health Services in Brisbane and also Professor of Medicine at the University of Queensland Medical School. Professor Griffin, thanks for joining the briefing. How do we know we're in a new COVID wave, given that people aren't really testing anymore? Look, it's a really good question. And really, the only data we have now to know that is relating to more significant things like hospitalisation. So we know a lot of people aren't getting tested. We know most states don't record rapid antigen tests. We've gotten rid of a lot of surveillance like wastewater testing in most states. So it's really hospitalisations that we go by. And one of the challenges there is that lags a little bit behind case numbers going up. So it means we probably miss the start of these increases in transmission and it limits our ability to intervene early potentially as well. What are hospital admissions indicating? So they've gone up quite significantly in in essentially all states, different times slightly, depending on which state you're in, but they've climbed very significantly across the country. And that tells us there's quite a lot of COVID in the community. Some other markers are things like the percentage or proportion of laboratory-based tests that are positive, and that's over 10% in most states as well, which, which tells us we're only finding a small fraction of the actual cases that are out there. So yeah, there is a very significant increase in COVID risk at the moment, and that's what we want to try and communicate to people so they can take some simple steps to reduce that risk. And just sticking with those hospital admissions, is it what we've traditionally known um, are most likely to end up in hospital, those with comorbidities, those who are older? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the main thing we want people to know is that there are traditional risk factors. Age is probably the most important, as are medical comorbidities, medical problems and and, uh, immunocompromise. And so they do constitute the bulk of people we see end up in hospital and not survive this infection. But that doesn't mean it's a problem exclusively for those groups. We do see people that don't have risk factors end up in hospital, unfortunately, not survive to a, a much lower degree. But it's not something that exclusively occurs in those with risk factors. And that's why we need everybody to, to understand the the basics of this infection and and what they can do to uh, reduce their risk of getting it and how they can manage it if they do get it. There is creeping complacency right through to full-blown complacency when it comes to COVID. I think a lot of people are still reeling from the trauma of their experiences over the past few years. How do you get, I guess to put it crudely, people to give a shit? Look, it's a, it's a really important point. And we know with public health interventions, it's people's perception of risk that really dictates whether they're going to do something, change their behaviour, adopt a mitigation strategy, for example. And I think for the majority of the population, that perception of risk has declined to levels that don't really give enough respect to, to this virus and the fact that it's still around and still causing people to end up in hospital and, and not survive. So it's a really important point. I think we need to do better at communicating that risk. And, you know, I think the challenge has been we maybe overdid it for a period of time 
early and that did lead to some fatigue and, you know, saturation and so some people turned off from some of that messaging. And and then I think we've underdone it in more recent times. We've stopped reporting numbers. We've stopped uh, giving some of those basics of uh, the public health messaging and some education around how we can intervene. So, you know, I think it's about getting the, the right messaging to the right people and I think that has to be a really active process of, you know, letting people know COVID hasn't gone away. It's increased in terms of risk at the moment, but we have fantastic tools to to address it. But if we don't utilise those, then the impact will be far greater than it needs to be. Do you think there's a disparity between the level of medical concern and the level of political concern to talk about this? Yeah, look, I think that's that's a big challenge. And, you know, in, in public health, in, in medicine, we try not to get involved in the politics. We'd like to think they're separate. But, of course, it's had a big part to play in COVID. And I think that is a factor. And, you know, I'd really like to think we get back to public health experts, clinicians, epidemiologists, et cetera, really giving that that right messaging so that people know who they can trust. And, you know, we, we know that it was hard to know who the right people were to listen to during COVID. And I think that's what we need to, to get back to is getting the right people to give the right messaging in the right ways so that people understand the risk and what they can do to, to reduce it. So what sorts of things are you advising people do, particularly in the lead up to Christmas? Yeah, look, it's it's really the basics that we've been talking about uh, from the start of the, the pandemic, but I guess not with some of the harsher things that probably diluted out some of that messaging. So we're not proposing border restrictions, lockdowns or anything like that, but we want people, if they have any symptoms, to stay home. Ideally, if you're eligible for antivirals or high risk, get a test so we know what we're dealing with. We want people to understand that simple things like ventilation can really make a big difference in terms of risk of transmission. Masks are a fantastic tool. They're not enough on their own and they need to be worn properly in the right type of mask, et cetera, but masks make a big difference. We've got excellent antivirals that if we give early to high-risk people greatly reduce their chance of getting really sick. And, of course, vaccination. I think there's probably where the messaging has really fallen down the most. There's a new booster on the way. We don't have any information publicly yet about when that might be available. It was approved over a month ago, so hopefully that's soon, and, and that will make a big difference, of course, only if we can get that into enough arms. So I think we need to be really proactive with the messaging around that booster now so that people are ready, people have got their logistics sorted, they've got appointments ready, et cetera, so that we can get as many people uh, boosted in a short space of time as possible. So that booster you mentioned is not yet available. Is it worth getting any other boosters or do we need to wait for this new one to tackle this new variant? It's challenging at the moment because, again, we have no visibility on the timelines of, of this new booster. So traditionally we would say don't wait. The, the best booster you can get is the one you can get now if you're eligible. So that's the, the mm. advice for most people is, is don't hold off. Because if you do and this new booster isn't available till say, next year, that's uh, quite a few weeks of uh, potential vulnerability while we're in the midst of a significant increase in risk. But hopefully we'll hear very soon that that booster isn't far away. You know, it was approved in early October. So really it should be getting very close. And so I just encourage people to maybe have a chat with a GP or pharmacist now about when they're eligible, what they might be eligible for, and when would be the optimum time to get that booster. Because we really need as many people boosted as possible to have the greatest effect. The Australian Medical Association is calling for masks to be mandatory on planes again. What's your position on that? Look, it's, it's challenging around mandating things like masks. I mean, we, we know they help, that's for sure. They're, they're not enough by themselves and we know that people need to wear them to have an effect and they need to wear a good quality mask that's not damaged or soiled, etc. Ideally an N95 that fits properly is the kind of mask we want people to, to wear. I think we're better to potentially encourage and facilitate and recommend mask wearing as much as possible rather than mandating because we know that people that won't wear one if we recommend probably won't wear one if we mandate it 
anyway. Mm. And some people object to those sorts of rules. And so it can actually have the opposite effect. And so, but I think we really need to do more to normalize, to encourage, to facilitate mask wearing. But those people who feel they're at higher risk, we should really encourage to to wear them as, as much as they can. Is it fair to say that the days for mandating are well and truly over, particularly because there were examples of overreach, particularly in Melbourne? I think so. I mean, I, I think it's always hard to predict the future and, um, you know, we never know what the, the next pandemic might be or what the next change in COVID might be or what happens with influenza. But I think we have learnt some valuable lessons about how we get the greatest uptake of things like vaccination and mask wearing. And most of the time that shouldn't include mandates outside of very specific situations and settings. You know, for example, healthcare and aged care in particular are particularly high-risk settings where those sorts of rules might have to be considered at times. But I think for the general public as a whole, I think those harsher rules are, are probably something we, we shouldn't have to see in the future. Do we know when this wave is expected to reach its peak? It's really challenging to know what to expect with this wave. You know, similarly with each and every wave, what we should expect, I think, is that each successive wave, and, you know, this is wave eight or nine, depending on your perspective and, and where you are in the country, but each wave should be shorter in duration and magnitude. So the, the peak gets less, the impact does go down, and that's not something that happens solely naturally. That's partly to do with, you know, our interventions improving, access to antivirals, boosters, etc. So with this wave, hopefully it's fairly short, but as I say, it's unpredictable. And in some ways it's up to us. If we do all the right things, get some increases in mask wearing, if people are mindful of risks of transmission, if people get these boosters, then hopefully this wave will be fairly short. Mm. If we remain complacent, then uh, it'll certainly be longer and of uh, greater magnitude than it needed to have otherwise been. But hopefully this will be a fairly short one. And I think most people are are worrying about the holiday season and Christmas. And, you know, while we can't predict, I would expect that it would at least be on the decline by the time we get to Christmas. The pandemic is over, but COVID-19 is not. Will we reach a point where COVID-19 is a thing of the past and it's something that we'll just talk about in the history books? I think our perception of the risk and how much of an emergency situation we perceive it as has certainly changed and, you know, nearly everywhere in the world has now declared it over as a public health emergency or similar. But I don't think this virus is going to go away. And I think what we're experiencing now is probably a sign of what we should expect at least for the next few years is that we'll have repeated increases in transmission. I mean, I think the description of waves is actually a bit challenging because we do have less visibility over the cases and it's just going to keep fluctuating. But increases in transmission, increases in risk in the population are going to happen when and how often and to what degree we simply can't predict but the virus isn't going to go away. And that's why I think we need to get to a sort of business as usual model of how we look after this, where people understand what the risk is, we communicate that better, and people are prepared to implement some basic strategies to reduce their risk and the risk of those around them when it's required. Professor Paul Griffin, Director of Infectious Diseases at Mater Health Services in Brisbane and Professor of Medicine at the University of Queensland Medical School. I find it interesting and a little bit strange that the latest booster approved more than a month ago still isn't available. So that means an immediate course of action for this eighth wave isn't actually readily available. And I do think politically there was a lot of damage and harm done to the health sector and that trust is going to take time to rebuild. And and sadly, in most cases, it had nothing to do with frontline health workers. They didn't make any of these decisions that many of us look back on and think, oh, that was a massive overreach. And yet they will still 
continue to see and treat those worst affected by COVID-19. Listener.